0: So for 18 months, the people of Flint were, were drinking corrosive water. The water was so corrosive, it actually ate up engines in, in GM's car plant.
1: I told you a few episodes ago that you'd be hearing more about the city of Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis that impacted its residents. Well, today is the day. Hi there, it's Rhoda, and I'm back for episode 31 of the Assyrian Podcast, Today's guest is a pediatrician, professor, public health advocate, author, and also one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, or more commonly known as Dr. Mona by all of her tiny human patients and colleagues alike, is the pediatrician that exposed the water crisis in Flint. She grew up in a family that mainly spoke Arabic at home but her father has done some extensive work on their family tree and has recently discovered a whole Assyrian ancestry in their family that I got to talk to Dr. Mona about. We also talked about the city of Flint, her work as a pediatrician, leadership, service, and her book, What the Eyes Don't See. I really enjoyed her book and love the way she weaved her family story into the story of Flint. I hope you get a chance to read it too. Before we get any further though, I have a disclaimer. The past 30 episodes have all been recorded in person. I know the sound quality hasn't always been perfect because of the acoustics of the different rooms and other contributing factors, but we've tried to record interviews in person because we know that gives us better sound quality. I was not able to meet with Dr. Mona in person, and so this interview was recorded via Skype. You might be able to tell the difference, but we thought the content of the interview was important enough that you'd still be able to enjoy it and gain something from it. Thank you for always listening and following us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell your family and friends about us. I continue to meet so many Assyrians who haven't heard of the Assyrian podcast, and it's always so fun to show them how to listen and keep up with new episodes. And thank you for your continuous feedback. We appreciate it so, so much. Speaking of appreciation, I'd like to thank Tony Caligarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York for sponsoring this episode. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, without further ado, here's Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha. podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you.
1: I want to ask you all about your book and Flint, but first I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. Um, I know that your parents were born in Iraq, but you weren't. Can you talk a little bit about where you were born and how you ended up settling in Michigan?
0: Absolutely. So I was actually born in Sheffield, England. My parents left Baghdad about a year prior and went there for my father to complete his studies. He was getting a PhD in metallurgical engineering. So my brother, who was just a year older than me, was, was actually born in Baghdad. And then shortly thereafter, they moved there um, for his studies. So we lived there until about the late 1970s. The, the plan was to go back to Iraq. That was home. Uh, that's where All of my uh, extended family was, but at that time is when Saddam Hussein was Saddam Hussein was rising in power, and my parents knew that with two small children they they could not go back home. They were very acutely hearing and seeing stories of his tyranny, his fascism, his oppression, his dictatorship. So it was really at the beginning of the Iraqi diaspora, and we immigrated to Michigan, uh, where most of Arab Americans are outside of the Middle East, but also most um, Iraqi Americans. So we came here when I was about four.
1: Your mom was also educated in Baghdad. She was a chemist, right? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so... um, both my parents grew up in in Baghdad. Uh, They had done their initial studies there. And my mom also um, went to college there at at Baghdad University. She was a chemist, uh, one of only two chemists um, in her class at the time. Uh, And I love going through her old pictures um, of the the 1970s in Iraq. And um, I, I swear you could put those pictures next to, you know, U.C. Berkeley, and there are lots of folks in short skirts and really progressive, really diverse. Her best friends were um, of all kinds of ethnicities. They were they were Muslim, and they were Iraqi Jews, and they were Christian. And it, it was you know a time of very kind of progressive thinking and progressive values. And and that is that, that is the Iraq that my parents remember. And, and really, that's the last time that they were there.
1: I have seen a lot of publications refer to you as. An Arab American. I've also, in your book, you talk about the fact that your family's part of the, um, has been a part of the Chaldean Church. You also talk about your Assyrian ancestry. Um, I'm curious how you self-identify
0: increasingly in our community there's been a lot of kind of division and divisiveness or you're this and you're not this and you're this if you came from this and I am everything you know I grew up and Arabic was my first language um it is I you know I relate to that culture that food that part of the world that people and you know it's a special connection when I hang out with friends who are Palestinian and Lebanese there's a shared there's shared cultures and their shared values um but you know, I'm also very, I'm also an Iraqi Christian, so we're Chaldean and um, have this amazing ancestry that we recently discovered uh, that traces back centuries um, of, of, you know, Iraqi Christians, Chaldeans, Nestorians, who uh, actually wrote down the, the traditional Aramaic. So, you know, I am, I am, I am a, I am part of all of these things, and I think it's ridiculous for us to. To divide ourselves and say we're not this and we're not that, it, it it makes us come across as, as arrogant, like one is better than the other, and that is not how I was raised. I was raised uh, to really believe in the value of, of all people and, and and what different folks bring to the table.
1: You are a pediatrician. Did you always know you wanted to become a pediatrician?
0: <laughs> I think it was... Um, I think it just was a perfect fit for me. I knew I wanted to serve. I knew I wanted to give back. And I knew that advocacy would always be part of my career. And and to me, pediatric, pediatrics fit all of that. It was uh, being in medicine is really the most intimate form of service. And then in pediatrics, so much of what we do is prevention. And also so much of what we do is advocacy, is speaking up for children. So it was just a perfect fit for me. Also, I, I'm honestly like a kid that has never grown up. So, so, uh, and being a pediatrician and hanging out with children enables me to stay that kid because like watching cartoons is like work. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, and the kids inspire me, you know, I, whenever I hang out with my kid in the clinic, it's, just it's, it, it keeps me going.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Flint. Um, Flint has been a household name the last few years. Um, If you are in the United States, but we have a lot of listeners who are from Europe and Canada and Australia. So can you talk a little bit about Flint as a city, where it's located, what are the demographics, and then what happened?
0: Yeah, so Flint is an amazing city, city with incredible history. Flint is the birthplace of cars. Uh, General Motors was born in Flint, and really, even more importantly than being the birthplace of cars, Flint is the birthplace of of resistance, and arguably the birthplace of the American dream. It was because of really brave and courageous auto workers who you know, literally sat down and occupied car plants in the 1930s that we have we have unions, and we have we have the UAW, and we have uh, the benefits and the wages that so many people are now part of um, in the United States. So Flint has this absolutely incredible history. At one point, Flint had the highest per capita income in the country, which is so hard to believe, but people in Flint made the most money of anywhere in the country. And because of that, People moved to Flint, so large population of immigrants um, from the Middle East, very large Assyrian population as well from Europe came to Flint for great living wage jobs as well as African-Americans as part of the Great Migration North. So Flint was the definition of prosperity. And not too long ago, like 1970s, is when we had the highest wages in the country. But since then, Flint has suffered really from decades of crisis. The water crisis is on top of decades of crisis, which began with disinvestment, which led to unemployment, poverty, racism, population loss, decline decline of unions, crumbling schools, violence, you name it. Flint is is riddled with all of these toxic stresses that affect children's development. Because of this financial state, the city was in near bankruptcy and thus was taken over by the state. In Michigan, there was a policy driven by austerity, which was to save money, that took over democracy in, in certain cities. So the state took over the city, appointed an emergency manager whose only goal was to save money, and they decided that the water that we had been getting from the Great Lakes, which we had been getting for over a half a century, which was fresh, pretreated water, uh, was too expensive for this poor, predominantly minority city. And instead, we started drawing water from the local Flint River, but that water wasn't treated properly. So for 18 months, the people of Flint were, were drinking corrosive water. The water was so corrosive, it actually ate up engines in, in GM's car plants. So uh, just a few months into this water water switch, GM noticed that their engine parts were corroding, uh, and they switched back to Great Lakes water. But the people of Flint were told to Relaxed to continue drinking this water the of water ate up the pipes that was in this aging infrastructure and the pipes are made of lead and that lead got into the drinking water into the bodies of our children um, and that's where I got involved um, really exposing the research that the lead was increasingly in the bodies of our
1: children and so you found out about it and did your research and you would think the city and the state would spring straight into action but that's not what happened can you talk about that yeah, that's not what happened. So I
0: shared this research, I shared science facts, evidence. Um and you think that people would Uh, believe facts. uh, But we're very much in this era is increasingly now of fact and science denial. And like everybody else who brought up concerns about this water, I was also attacked. Uh, The science was attacked as well as my credibility. But then we fought back. We fought back with more evidence, with more science. And ultimately, it was our loudness, our persistence, and our science that spoke truth to power. And and the state finally conceded. And and really, since that point, we have been on a a path to recovery.
1: What is the current state of water in Flint? That's a great question. So the
0: the year and a half that we were on this untreated corrosive water ate up our pipes. So those pipes are being replaced and that takes time. So we are about halfway through this pipe replacement process. And until those pipes are replaced, people still need to be on filtered and bottled water.
1: And I know that there are currently investigations going on to figure out what happened, um, what do you hope these investigations uncover?
0: Yeah, there's lots of efforts at accountability. There's been many investigations by lots of different folks, the Civil Rights Commission, the EPA, the Attorney General's Office, as well as criminal charges that have been brought up against uh, lots of the folks that were involved, including homicide charges. Um, We talked about lead, but we also had uh, deaths because of Legionnaires' disease, which was also caused by this untreated water. Um, What I hope that all of these efforts at accountability get at is justice. There needs to be justice so that the people of Flint can Can really move on. I think of it as almost a truth and reconciliation process. And when you have these efforts at accountability at restorative justice, you can really move on to that long process of reconciliation.
1: How long did it take for Flint to get national attention?
0: How long did it take Flint to get national attention? It took a long time. And, and there's been many reports at like, why it took so long? Why wasn't the national media on this story? Uh, you know, when water comes out of the tap that's brown, why didn't people pay attention? Um, and m- many of the folks who've investigated that issue uh, and the issue, by and large, really point to this as being an environmental injustice. It was because of the demographics of the population, poor minority community, that they were largely ignored and people closed their eyes, which also gets at the title of my book. My title, The title of my book is called What the Eyes Don't See. It's very much about lead and water. Lead and water is invisible. It's about the impacts of lead, which are known as a silent pediatric epidemic, but it is so much bigger than Flint. It is about people, it is about places, and it is about problems that we choose not to see, that we just close our eyes to. Flint was purposely neglected. People didn't want to be aware of that problem. Um, and then kind of my story and the story of the book is that we need to open our eyes. We need to be awake to these injustices. And they're not just in Flint. They're they're all over the nation's world they're right outside our backyard and we need to be awake to them and then we need to act on them
1: i'm glad you mentioned the title of your book because i wanted to ask you why is the book called what the eyes don't see but i think you just um talked about that as i was thinking about the title i was trying to think of little stories that you talk about in the book that also apply i thought of the scar you talk about on your forehead which is also yes. something- you don't see it yeah, it's right <laughs> Um, And I also thought about your dad listening on his radio to stories about Iraq. His eyes couldn't see what he wanted to know, but he was just finding ways to to know more. So I've you got yeah. it. There's
0: so many meanings of the title mm-hmm. and you definitely pecked on more. Um, it's also about my immigrant status. When you, you see me, when you look at me, you, you know, you also don't know that history, that background, mm-hmm. that social justice background really kind of, you know, with generations of folks who are always fighting, Uh, to do the right thing. But yeah, the the title means a lot of different things. It also speaks to our blindness in in medicine. We we are very myopic. We only see what's in front of us and we fail to see what's happening at a population level. So yeah, there's a whole whole list and a book club can dissect all of the (laughs) the meanings of the title.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the narrative structure of the book because one of the things I enjoyed the most was that, you know, I feel like you could have just told the story of what happened in Flint, and that would have been an interesting memoir. But you chose to talk about your family's history extensively. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that narrative style and structure?
0: That's a great question. So I think it would have been really, it would have been easy for me to just talk about Flint and to talk about what happened. And that would have been timely, and it would have done well. Um, But I'm, I'm not really, I don't really take the easy route. (laughs) I I, I took a risk. I, I, you know, to understand my role in Flint, how I got there and what I did and why I did it, you have to know who I am. So this book is very much... A memoir. Um, And, you know, that immigrant story is a bit, like you said, is a big part of this book. And I don't think it would have been as big a part of this book if it wasn't for the last presidential election. I wanted people to see a positive immigrant story, especially from our part of the world, where increasingly, you know, we are closing our doors to, to people just like me. I mean, when I was four, Lady Liberty welcomed her arms and opened me into this country. We were you know, basically fleeing oppression and tyranny and dictatorship and and looking for that American dream, looking for opportunity and freedom and democracy. And it was realized for me. And as a result, I grew up competent and confident and proud of the diversity that I brought to the table. And you have to question what we are doing and what we are missing out on um, right now in this nation. So that needed to be part of the story. You also needed that um, perspective to, to understand the lens that I see the world in, because I see the world in it with this lens of being everyday grateful to be in this country, being lucky and privileged to be here, because really a split second decision, I wouldn't be here. I'd be like my cousins who were back home. And But it's also a perspective that acutely knows what injustice is. Like I say in the book, my parents never shielded us from what was happening back home. You know, there's images of, for example, Halebchev, first time I saw a dead baby where, where I realized what people in power could do to vulnerable populations. So I grew up with this lens of, of knowing what injustice was. And because of that, really dedicating my life to, to, you know, fighting against that and almost having this heightened antenna that of, of knowing what it could be and, and being aware of it and, and making sure it doesn't happen.
1: The other thing that, that narrative style showcased for me was that humans can be connected to each other through so many different ways that a daughter of immigrants from Iraq could find similarities between her own story and the story of people in Flint. And it got me wondering about our community and how our own oppression and suffering should, you would think, soften our hearts to the suffering of other people, do you think that's true? And do you see that being a part of what people in our community experience, and should they? I
0: think we come from a place where we acutely know what discrimination is, we acutely know what it feels like to be part of a vulnerable minority, we acutely know what injustice is, and, you know, we have that same perspective of being fortunate to be in a place, you know, that has that freedom for me. And for so many others, that's what's pushed us to you know, commit our careers to serve um, because of that background. And that's, you know, and that is the story of America. is these immigrants who've come and, and made this country a better place because of what they've been through. So I, I hope that those lessons translate to our larger community. And I think that they do. And that's the message that I hope to share is that of, of a borderless cause like and, and this kind of reminds me of the story in the book about my my great uncle Nuri, who went and fought in the Spanish Civil War, like one of two Iraqis who went to fight against Nazis and fascism in the 1930s. Like I, I love this story because it wasn't about a religion or a race or even a country. It was about this bigger concept these bigger values of peace and justice and freedom and that that's how i see my work and that's how I hope, I hope everybody sees their work that it's not you know it's not you know this religion this race this country these people it's it's about humanity <laughs> and i think if we kind of put down those barriers um maybe we would be more empathetic to the suffering that is happening in our own communities Regardless of you know who those people are and what they look like, they're, they're you know that's part of our civic responsibility. That is part of our job as humans is to care and provide for each other. And for me, it doesn't matter where I am or who they are. You know, my kids in Flint are no different than my children. I treat them the same.
1: You talk a lot about different kinds of leaders in your book too. You mentioned Saddam for obvious reasons. Governor Rick Snyder, the current governor of Michigan. Your grandfather stood out to me as a leader in Uh your life Mm. and your family. He named you. There are other stories Uh about his leadership. I'm curious what you have learned about leadership the last few years. I
0: think what I've learned and what I've I've tried to espouse is that, you know, is is the role of a servant leader, that, you know, you are a leader to serve, Um, and if you have the skills that that enable you to lead that it is for the benefit of others. So that is kind of that is kind of how I espouse my role in leadership, how I've tried to be a leader um, in my work and in my community, but also how I've seen other leaders. You know, it's about being a good listener. It's about, you know, caring for all. The story of Flint is a story where people who are poor and minority didn't have access to clean water. That that's you know, we, we don't want to be a society Uh, anywhere where it's, where the privileged have different things than the non-privileged. So it's leading with with equity and compassion, but also, you know, leading with a mindset that recognizes history. So there's a lot of history in my book. The history of, for example, the place I grew up here in Michigan, Royal Oak, uh, which used to have like this this Nazi priest uh, who, uh, and then, you know, the history of Flint that had underlying racist policy. So uh, the history of lead, the history of public health, there's a lot of history in the book. And it's not like boring history. It's page turning, exciting history. But we need to know the history of the places that we walk through. Because without knowing that as a leader, you t- you can obviously repeat some of the same mistakes, but you fail to acknowledge the past and what happened and, and remedy what, what happened. So our uh, one of our big initiatives in Flint right now is this registry where we are identifying folks who are exposed and getting them connected to resources. So a community member uh, selected the logo of this registry and it really kind of speaks to all of this. It is the mythical African bird, it's called the Sankofa bird. And this bird is flying forward Yet looking back and holding an egg in its mouth, so it is this concept that we always have to push ahead. We always have to, you know, you know, go forward. Yet we cannot forget our past. We cannot forget where we came from and our roots, and and be proud of those roots. Um, and and the egg in the mouth is we have to prioritize the young and the kids. Um, so I think that's kind of symbolic of, of all of this, and especially as a leader, like we need to look, we need to go forward, but we cannot kind of whitewash or be blinded to our past. And, and it's always the kids.
1: I'm curious what your experience has been in uh, the ways that you have led the people who work with you and for you um, over the last few years as a woman in a leadership role. Uh, what has that been like for you? In
0: my discipline in pediatrics, it is, um, it is woman, female predominant, not not in all of medicine, but pediatrics is. And I've never really let my gender play a role in anything. I was raised to, uh, to be loud and, and to be stubborn. And, and, you know, especially in our culture, so often it's like, oh, girls can't do this. We're not sending our girls to college. We're not. Do-. And my parents did not believe that. Like I said, my mom was one of two women in, in her chemistry class. She went away to college. So when it was time for me to go to college, she's like, yeah you're going away to college like I I would love you for you to stay home but you're going away (laughs) um so you know I've been blessed to never um have some of those cultural even those you know where that I've been restricted in that capacity so you know so so often you know I just I don't I don't even see that however it definitely has played a role there's a part in the book where I mentioned that so often in pediatrics, I'm used to like dark women in white coats. And in this crisis, I was often surrounded by like white men in dark coats and dark suits. Uh, so, I, you know, I've 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 been proud of that. I've been excited to be able to kind of push through um, and to be a strong woman leader, especially in our community.
1: Speaking of the white coat, the part that you talk about that donning the white coat and like feeling that sense of authority that it gave you, Um, I was describing this to my husband and he said, oh, like Bruce Wayne. He's not Bruce (laughs) Wayne anymore when he puts on the cape. He's Batman. Um, Totally. (laughs) (laughs) the, The water crisis in Flint and the work that you've done has brought you to the forefront of the nation's attention in some way. You were named as one of Time's Most Influential People. Um, You have a book that the New York Times and the Washington Post have written reviews on. Uh, What sort of opportunities has this uh, presented to you um, to help other disenfranchised people on a larger scale?
0: You got it. So I have been blessed and privileged to to have this amazing microphone, uh, to have this larger platform, especially with writing a book. Um, and and the whole purpose of all of that is is to share a message and to share a story and to impact the lives of more children. Uh, so, you know, Flint, the, this book is not about just Flint. It is about so many other bigger issues that are facing children all over this world. We have too many kids who are living in very similar toxicities, be it poverty, racism, discrimination, violence, incarcerated parents, you name it. And all those things impact children. So I will hold on to this microphone. I will I will stay on stage as long as I can to, to be able to impact the lives of more children. So I, 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 I'm, I'm very privileged um, and I'm, I realize how lucky I am. And uh, I mean, I'm excited to share that message. And, you know, a lot of the accolades and the awards are very awkward because I continue to to, you know, really express that this is part of my job. This is part of my job as a pediatrician is to advocate for children and and to, you know, to care for these kids. You know, I literally took an oath to protect children. Um, but you know, part of writing this book is also to challenge everyone that we all took an oath. All of us as humans have that very civic responsibility, um, to protect children. Um, and that's another one of the messages I want to share. And it's also all these, you know, accolades like I said are also quite awkward but if I can you know inspire another young girl you know a girl who is maybe a person of color maybe from our own background um, you know a girl that can also believe in herself and believe that she can change the world um, then it's all worth
1: it. There's one person in particular I want to ask you about that you uh, talk about his story in your book and that is Dr. Paul Shikwana. Can you tell our listeners who he was and what he did?
0: Yeah, so this is an amazing story, so you all need to read it in the book. Um, but uh, in, in short, he was probably at that time an uh, epidemiologist, infectious disease expert, bacteriologist. whose whose gravestone actually said he was born in Assyria, so it wasn't even present-day Iraq. In the early 1900s, he came to the U.S. via England to be a public health warrior. So he immediately came, I think in like 1904, to Washington, D.C., to George Washington University, and then quickly was sent to Iowa to fight the plague Um, and has published articles in medical journals. He was so famous, almost all of his travels were done documented, for example, in the Iowa newspapers. And he actually also, he talked about the importance of hand washing, water quality, milk pasteurization. Like, this guy was a legend. He was an absolute public health champion. And it's hard to believe that there's any Iraqis in Iowa now. But to imagine Iraqis in Iowa in, like, the early 1900s is amazing. Um, so it, it's, I think it's such important history for our community to recognize that we have been making an impact impact in the world for a long time. Um, and, and he's like my, I don't know, I, my dad has the whole kind of genealogy, but like, he might be a great uncle, like 10 times removed or something. Like um, but what is this, his story is just incredible. Because, you know, my father dug and dug and found out more about his story. And we've recently created a scholarship a few years ago in his name to give to graduating high school students who want to pursue, um, who want to go to college. But it is an amazing story. He, he's very sadly, tried tragically died very young in a train accident or a train hit him as he was... Um, um, I don't know, fishing or something, Uh, but an amazing, amazing public health pioneer in the early 1900s in Iowa from Assyria.
1: Yeah, that's actually... The reason why I know about him, I knew about him before I read his story in your book because I have seen a picture of his tombstone where it says born in Israel." Ah, yeah. And so when I read about him in your book, I was happy to know more about his. That was one of my favorite stories. I was so glad you talked about it. You mentioned earlier about people in your family, along with Dr. Paul Shikwana and the other great uncle, who have been in line of basically serving other people. You've also talked about uh, people um, in your ancestry who've been priests and uh, part of both the Catholic Church and the Syrian Church of the East. Um, and I- I'm curious what it feels like for you to be a descendant of people who have left that kind of legacy, um, not just in your family, but the world at large
0: yeah, no, I, I think this is what I share to my young daughters is is to be proud of where you came from. You came from really awesome people who were were leading the way. They were blazing the trail, you know, in and, you know, and doing really incredible things. um so so definitely um sharing that oral history, sharing whatever we have about these amazing ancestors because it only makes us stronger. It, it enables us to realize that, um, you know, that we have a power within us um, that is almost intergenerational. You know, that sometimes we don't think we can we can do great things uh, or it's scary and it's hard and there's no way I can do this. Nobody's ever done this before. But to know this history enables all of us, because it's a shared history, we're all cousins, um, to enable all of us to, to have that bigger impact.
1: Your family has this great tradition of storytelling that you talk about in the book. Um, about people um, that we've just talked about in your family, what is the story that you hope your great great grandchildren hear about you?
0: Yeah, so I hope that they just read my book, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's that's how I wrote the book okay, is to document these things, you know, for my kids um, and for, for their kids and their kids after that. So they, they can hear some of these great stories and hopefully really commit their lives to serve. Um, you know, these stories aren't, it's not about me. It's not about my ancestors. It's, it's about them and what, what they can contribute to, to their communities.
1: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. You may have noticed some changes to our logo, and we'd like to thank Eva Toma for designing the logo and Jessica Laudu for the new graphic text. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Stephen Lelham and Tanya Daniel for the new format of the logo. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then.